everybody. Welcome back to the show, Science Facts and Fallacies, episode 249. My name is Cameron English, your host as always. Joined again by Dr. Liza Dunn, toxicologist, physician, all around wonderful lady. How are you doing, Liza? Hi, and how are you? <laughs> it's uh, it's great to see you again. I do have to make a, a slight complaint, though. You posted a horrifying picture on Twitter <laughs> of a very poisonous snake. Uh, venomous, excuse me, coming out of some lady's fridge in Australia. <laughs> and I just looked at that and, and like shuddered a little bit. That was horrifying. Can you, what, is that real? First of all, I guess is the question I want to know. As far as I understand, because it was sent by Jillian Fennell, who is a big ag person in Australia. I can't remember okay. her exact role, exact role, but this is, yes, her, her friend's son actually was bitten in the past by a venomous snake. Okay. in australia and the, the, i don't know if you know this but i think you probably do but australia is home to the most venomous creatures in the in on the planet and Figures, so uh, yeah, yeah there, there are all sorts of ways to die um at the hands of mother nature there <laughs> so apparently getting snakes cut uh, caught in your ice machine is one of them um i wasn't 100 percent sure just looking at the snake what what kind it was it was darkish um but uh, it could have been an eastern brown snake which is really really highly venomous i went and looked that up after you you after you speculated and apparently the venom of that snake acts like a hyper blood thinner <laughs> and so it bites you and then you just bleed out i'm like oh man i would have lit my fridge on fire <laughs> <laughs> so very very scary yeah okay anyways well i um i don't know what to tell people if you got a snake in your fridge you're gonna have a bad thing <laughs> okay yeah. well anyways let's uh let's oh sorry go ahead go ahead no, that, that reminds me of a story um, in, when I was a fellow in New York, a guy came to the ER, actually not my patient, this is my boss's patient, um, came to the ER with a rattlesnake bite and he said that he'd been playing Frisbee in Central Park um, and reached under a bush and wound up with a rattlesnake bite. And the problem is that it was like November and Central Park doesn't really have rattlesnakes. <laughs> Oh. And it oh, turned no. out that he was keeping snakes in his fridge um, for his little restaurant. And the fridge kind of is cooler. And so snakes slow down when it's cool. But um, this one was a little bit sort of more alert than he thought. And so he got bitten on the hand by a rattlesnake um, from his own fridge. Well, there's a good life story. lesson. Don't put mm -hmm. snakes in your fridge. They don't. <laughs> nope. <laughs> okay. Okay, enough about uh, my uh, my fear of these ridiculous creatures. Let's talk about uh, our stories today. We've got three as usual. And first up, we're going to talk about lab-grown meat. 14 facts you need to know about uh, this flashy new technology. And then next up, big weed today is a whole lot like big tobacco in the 1950s. And finally, new report urging parents to buy organic could hurt Americans' health, according to experts. All kinds of cool stuff in here, Liza. This this first story, though, this is uh, from a website called Tasting Table by Sarah Klimek. And I, I have to say, overall, I think it's a pretty decent story in that it just sort of summarizes how lab-grown meat is made and some of the, the potential risks and benefits of it and how it compares to animal agriculture. It's it's not perfect, but few stories are. Um, and, and I think this is a good read overall if you want to understand how this works and, um, you know, if you're you should eat it if you shouldn't eat it and so forth um i think the the biggest thing we'll probably discuss is the environmental impact of this versus you know typical traditional agriculture but what what did you take away from this 
Yeah, I think it's very interesting. And, you know, lots of people have reasons why they want to decrease their meat consumption. Some of it is because of moral reasons, because of, you know, animal welfare. Some of it's because of the environmental impact of livestock. Um, and some of it is because, uh, you know, they think, they think that, uh, you know, greenhouse gas emissions are higher and things like that with, with uh, live livestock. So there are a bunch of reasons. Some of them are even religious. So, you know, some people don't eat uh, pork products and things like that. So um, there are a variety of reasons why people make the decisions that they do. And I think they're entitled to those decisions. Um, and this particular uh, product is designed to accommodate some of those desires. Um, and so the idea is that if you can culture meat and grow meat, you can actually have in, in, a, in a Petri dish, um, you can, in, in a bioreactor, you can uh, decrease the amount of livestock that you need to, to, to meet the increasing demand for meat that is expected to grow globally. Yeah, I, let's get to there again. There wasn't much that I disliked about this article, but one of the things they said in in sort of doing an A/B comparison between lab-grown meat and um, animal agriculture is they said that the environmental footprint of um, farming has gotten worse in recent decades. And based on all the data I, I'm aware of, that's that's not that's, even, not even remotely correct, right? It's, that's it's, not even remotely correct, right? Yes. It's it's the same thing with cars or any technology. They get more sustainable over time because the technology improves. What do you think? That's exactly right. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think we've made it so many great advances in agriculture, both both you know crops, crop production, and livestock production. That the animals that we have out there are much more efficient, much more productive than they have been in, in the past. Over the past hundred years, we've gotten an unbelievable increase in milk, meat, and egg production um, with fewer inputs, actually. Um, and the, the really important thing about animal agriculture that a lot of people forget is that um, it's part of sort of the natural cycle. Uh, livestock take uh, grass, which we can't eat, and they transform it into very, very high-quality protein that, gets, that we've evolved to uh, to use in our diets. And so um, they take land that you wouldn't otherwise be able to grow things on um, and, and are able to convert that land into high quality, um, high quality food sources. The other thing that they do is they maintain soil. Um, if you, if you don't overgraze, they maintain soil quality because of manure, right? So you mm -hmm. improve your, um, you improve your, uh, soil micro microorganism, uh, concentrations and, and varieties. Um, if you have, uh, you need manure to fertilize the soil um, that way. So I, I think that people sort of forget that when they're thinking about all the different trade-offs um, when it comes to livestock production. The other thing that people forget about is how the entire animal is actually used. So over 60% of the animal will be in meat, but there are multiple everyday ordinary things that we take for granted that are made out of other byproducts of livestock. So, for example, in research, we use gel and gelatin and things like that that come from, you know, hooves and other products, right? Um, blood is used to make imitation eggs, which is kind of interesting to mm. think about. Um, the sticky part of Band-Aids is made from fatty acids. So there are all sorts of adhesives and shampoos. And if you see steric acid, those things are all derived from animal sources. So they're, 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 
the whole animal is used in the production of things for, from your belt to your footballs that you play with and things like that in terms of leather. The whole carcass is used. Gut is used for, uh, you know, instrument strings and, and tennis racket strings and things like that. We don't, we sort of take all of that stuff for granted. So if you get rid of all of livestock farming, there are a whole lot of other impacts that you can have that are on sort of people don't think about. Yes, I, it's the same thing with um, with like fossil fuels, for example, and plastics. That's another good example. But but just specifically to this issue, just a couple of stats that people I would like more people to be aware of. So this is this was a report from the Breakthrough Institute, which is also cited in this article, but not this report. Interesting left. So there's a there's 140 million fewer hectares of pasture today than there were in 2000. And as you said, uh, production has increased. So we're getting more meat, more milk more derivative products from these animals and we're raising fewer of them on less land right so so the impact is shrinking and part of that is as you said there's been improvements in animal health there's better medicines better vaccines in some cases the animals are bred for the conditions where they're raised so so if the weather's hotter for example you can breed cattle that that thrive in that environment um, like in Brazil, for example, it's all kinds of things. And then this is the the one I always like to bring up is that there's a lot of dairy and livestock uh, operations that recycle animal or methane from animal manure mm-hmm. and turn it into energy and they power their farms. And any article you read that that wants to uh, attack animal agriculture, they never bring this up, you know, and it's like, I think in California, this it's only one state, but there's been a 30% reduction in methane emissions from animal agriculture because of this. So if you can replicate that in more places and scale it, that's an enormous uh, sustainability initiative. And no one that, no one talks about it, right? It's funny. And it's, yeah, and it, that is actually really important because it, it's, once again, you know, recycling and, and, and doing it, recycling the products that you make and becoming more and more energy efficient, right? So, it, you know, energy is one of the big things we talk about um, and trying to capture efficiencies. So if you can capture energy out of this as well as nutritious food with a decreased environmental footprint, you are really doing something enormous for both health for people and health for the planet. And I keep on hearing people talk about uh, this one health concept, but they mm-hmm. don't get to hear about these really good ideas for how to manage this stuff. Yeah. That's because it's ideological. You're going to eat the bugs and the lab grown meat and you're going <laughs> to like it because you, your overlords have told you so, not because of science. <laughs> right. The other problem with this meat is that it's extraordinarily expensive. So yes. I saw, um, I saw at the Consortium of Universities for Global Health a conference, um, and they're, they're, just to be clear, there are plant-based meats, right, that are, that are made out of soy and pea and things like that, and that's different than this. These are cell cultures, so this is coming from stem cells from cattle or other, other animals where they pour, you know, they, they, where they grow it from the actual stem cells, and so um, this, but the, at the conference, one pound of meat cost $18,000. And that's just not sustainable. Ordinary people have to be able to buy food. And so right now, the livestock industry is very productive, produces high, high quality food. We've got the best quality food that we've ever had in the history of 
our existence. Um, and they do it in a way that is affordable to most people. You know, in previous centuries, people haven't had access to lots of meat in their diet. And they um, were, you know, vitamin B12 deficient and a whole variety of other things. Um, so this, the way we've got it set up now, more people have access to higher quality food. Yeah. And, and I've heard uh, Dr. Allison Van Enenum put it, um, we're basically trying to replicate a cow in the laboratory when we already have cows. So, yes. <laughs> right. So that's necessarily, <laughs> that's, exactly right. that's going to be an energy intensive project because you're trying to replicate something that nature already gave us. And interestingly, they, in this article, they cite a study from UC Davis where uh, Dr. Van Enenum is... Uh, is a resident expert, I'll, I'll say. But according to the study, the per, per kilogram of beef, uh, carbon emissions are between four and 25 times higher. If you were to scale the technology as it exists now, uh, that's enormous. Now, now in defense of, of you know, the lab-grown meat folks, that will probably improve in the future as the technology gets better, just like it does with, with everything mm -hmm. we've talked about so far. But I think instead of throwing a bunch of money in this and talking about how it's going to save us from a climate catastrophe, we should let the industry grow and actually make a product that's viable and great. No problem with that. But exactly, you know, there's too much hype and not enough um, production yet, right? Not enough. That's exactly right. Too few results. Um, but yeah, that's good. Uh, check out this article if it's a topic you want to learn more about. It's just uh, 12 or 14 facts about lab grown meat. Good, good background. So check that out. And let's move on and talk about pot, which is everyone's favorite topic, Liza. So this is a this is this is a story from Stat News. It's called "Big Weed Today Is a Whole Lot Like Big Tobacco in the 1950s." It's by Thomas Fairley, Doctor Thomas Fairley, who was uh, some sort of public health official in New York for a long, long time. So he starts out and he says, uh, "Drug prohibition has not worked." Right? I think we've most people I would recognize today that you know putting people in jail uh, for selling or using marijuana probably not a good idea it's just we right we haven't solved this problem of drug use and abuse with courts and laws and police officers it hasn't worked so his solution is to treat the he calls it a big marijuana or big weed excuse me right we need to treat big weed the way we treated big tobacco um after the 1960s so the idea is that it's a public health approach so you tax the product you regulate the product you restrict how it's advertised specific claims so you'll see today you know um like dispensaries will say marijuana prevents diabetes and it's good for pain and it's you know makes you too blah, much blah, 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 blah. right 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 <laughs> so there's a lot of and 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 again part of the problem is the academy because there's a lot of goofy epidemiological research where they say people that smoke pot have this particular trait that is positive on some occasions and therefore right marijuana we're going to take that and we're yeah. going to we're going to overstate its promise there you go gobble your thc gummies it's good for your blood sugar or whatever um anyways but he goes through and he talks about it, it like each paragraph he says you know the tobacco industries made this bunk claim about cigarettes and then now big weed is making this bunk claim about their multitude of products and then uh you know big tobacco lied about this health effect and now marijuana big big weed is the, right that's the model throughout the throughout the story and the basic idea Again, as he says, you know, we cut cigarette smoking like by 75%. And I think today it's the lowest it's ever been. Like, like, like you, yeah. you smoking is like below 2%. So it's a, it's very good for public health. Um, I think we can dispute why that, why that has happened. You yeah. Know, he wants to take credit. He and his fellow health bureaucrats want to say, look at all this great work we did. Um, 
But nevertheless, he says, we're done. With, we should be done with prohibition. Let's move into a public health approach. So you're the toxicologist and the doctor. You've seen more of this in real life than I think most people have. What do you think? So I think that um, it's kind of interesting to have watched the whole harm reduction movement develop in the setting of trying to decriminalize all sorts of different kinds of drugs that have formerly been criminalized. Now, while I don't think people should be in prison for having a little bit of marijuana on them, there was, unlike with tobacco, a very robust black market created for THC and mm. THC derivatives and things like that. So what you've got here is you've got the desire to um, regulate THC in a way that will prevent them from making claims like the tobacco industry did and prevent them from inviting children um, into, um, you know, with e eating, you know, THC gummies. The same thing was said about Joe Camel. I don't know if you remember Joe Camel yeah. was a character on a cigarette pack. And basically, it was thought that he was, you know, appealing to kids and that that, that kind of advertising was trying to get uh, kids to smoke and entice kids to smoke. And you see these advertisements. So it, it's there's very strict regulations around advertising for cigarettes and alcohol, but you're not seeing that same thing applied to cannabis. And you're not seeing the same health claims applied to cannabis um, as there are for this. But the problem is if you regulate and tax, and we're always see, already seeing this, uh, if you regulate and tax and make it very, very difficult for people to produce cannabis in a legal way, there's already a robust way to get it yeah. through the black market. And people are actually um, having a hard time paying for jumping through all the hoops to open their shop while people can still get it on the street. And because the breeding methods are better and higher, getting higher and higher concentrations of yes. THC, um, and, and there are attendant problems with that, but uh, you are getting, you're still getting much more potent THC and you can get street from the street. You're also seeing though, people adulterating street bought, THC and you can find blood thinners in there. You can find, you know, fentanyl in there. There, there have been a lot of deaths and things like that. So this is going to be long and short for my answer is this is going to be a lot more complex to regulate than tobacco was. Yes. And uh, I don't, I don't know Dr. Fairley. I'm sure he's a swell guy, but this public health approach is not nearly as helpful as he lets on in the story. And what's going to happen? I, I'll I'll bet money on this if someone wants to bet me. If he gets his way and they regulate marijuana the way they have tobacco over the years, you're going to get four or five giant pharmaceutical companies mm -hmm. or giant consumer product companies that are going to dominate the market. They're going to crowd everyone else out of the market. They're going to lobby for reg regulations that are almost impossible to comply with. And then you're yep. gonna you're gonna have like you have legacy tobacco now you're gonna have a legacy marijuana industry and as you said you know people that don't want to go to you know I don't know GlaxoSmithKline for their pot they're gonna go to Steve around the corner and they're gonna get and buy their pot from him tax free right right they're gonna get their whatever you know right magic carpet ride on uh, it's like it, it doesn't work the other the other thing and this really frustrates me because these. People with this mindset, they take it upon themselves to say, I'm going to teach you what's good for you. And the way I'm going to do that is I'm going to force you to do what I want because I yep. care about you and I'm, I'm smart. And I live in a New York high rise apartment. Like it just, it, it, it burns my blood. It's, it makes me really angry, but here's the thing. If you really want to prevent drug use in people, 
there's robust research that shows you how to do it. And it's common sense too. So for example, and again, I'm looking at a study in JAMA um, Internal Medicine. This is based on the nurse's health study. They said people who are religious are less likely to be addicted to drugs. And if they find religion later in life, they're more likely to recover from addiction. Um, if you live in a two-parent home as a child, over and over and over again, you see really well-done studies that show when there's two parents in the child's life, they don't get involved with drug use. Mm -hmm. um, and again, this one will probably get me in trouble. I don't care. Uh, promiscuity. There's been really good research on this too. The more sexual partners you have, whether you're a man or a woman, the more inclined you are to drug use and other risky behaviors, right? But, you know, Stat News being a Bloomberg-funded content site, they are not going to come out and say, listen, you know, we really need parents to stay together and take their kids to church and discourage um sexual activity in your teen years, right? That is just over the line. You're not allowed to comment on those things. So we're going to talk about taxing pot and, you know, flavors hook kids and blah, 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 blah. Like all this stuff we know generally doesn't work. And just one final thing I'll say, the reason that smoking declined in say the eighties and nineties is because the evidence came out that it caused cancer. You know, it just became right. unequivocal. The tobacco industry tried to hold out and they were wrong. And but once that revelation was clear to people, um, that's what dis, that's what caused smoking to decline. You know, taxes have an effect, restrictions on advertising have an effect, sure. But once people were aware, oh, this is really bad for me, I should stop. That's exactly right. And you know what's amazing about that is that was the the golden age of epidemiology, because you could really show a consistent effect through large cohort prospective studies you know, for with with mechanistic evidence that this was true. This that was a golden age of epidemiology. And what's amazing to me is that physicians will use epidemiology in ways that is that that are there's no evidence whatsoever that certain things cause cancer or certain things. Um, and they will they will say that this is they will use abuse epidemiology to to make a, an ideologic point, um, but they will, you know, they're, 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 they're not doing the same thing with this particular case they, what, and drugs just in general. I guess I'm, what I'm saying is the, the harm reduction movement over the past 20 years has created an epidemic of uh, illegal drug use that's gotten absolutely out of hand. Um, and it, it's been largely driven by physicians who've been well-intended and wanted to reduce people from you get from sh getting HIV from sharing needles or hepatitis C or you know other things like that and so they've started decriminalizing hard drugs and now you've got this population that's out on the street and absolutely not going into rehab or to addiction medicine clinics and things like that because you're not allowed to use your drugs there so it's it caused it, it's had a sort of paradoxical worsening effect and the more drugs that we legalize and the more drugs that we um, let people use all the time, um, the, the more I think we're causing this and you're seeing more, more bad health effects. And we've started by doing that with, you know, with, with, uh, they decriminalized heroin in, in, in uh, Portland. And now they're, now they're like, uh Oh, maybe that was a bad idea two years later, but, right. but, Patients, real pain patients can't get drugs. 
right? right? They can't get their medication because it's so everything's so regulated around the medical system, but nothing's re- regulated around the black market and all this stuff. Yeah. So I think the same thing's happening with marijuana. I, I think marijuana should be very, very careful about what it's promising because they're going to see big trial attorneys pretty darn soon because right. they also, you know, smoking marijuana probably also causes lung cancer, right? <laughs> so you've oh, that's got interesting. Uh huh. Right. You've got inflammatory, you're inhaling carcinogens. Yeah. I so mean, it, it makes sense that that's a possibility. I, it has, is there a lot of data on that? I haven't looked at it at a very, I'm, I haven't looked at it very carefully, but I'm, I am, I would, I mean, it makes absolute sense. Right. Yeah. Um, so, so I think that we're, I, I think that trial attorneys are just kicking back and looking at big weed and going, let's see what, let, let's see what happens. Right. Um, Right. So I think that so I don't think that um, all of this kind of approach to the different classes of drugs. And that's why I'm also concerned a little bit about the whole hype around, um, you know, LSD and psilocybin and, and as a, you know, treating depression. Mm-hmm. I'm afraid of the black market that's already there um, winding, winding up sort of circumventing legal use that gets taxed and regulated and so the people who are supposedly going to benefit from it pain patients these things and the other are are not going to get this and everybody else or or they're going to have to pay higher prices and go to glasgow smith klein or whoever whatever drug company or whatever drug company is making whatever product um, we don't make cannabis, by the way, but um, <laughs> but but you know whatever company is making what kind of product, um, they're going to pay a higher price. They're going to, you know, it's it's not going to necessarily benefit them. And there's going to be uh, just this uh, parallel, uh, yeah, mass casualty. <laughs> yeah, there's uh, this is the cynical side of me working in this this area for so long. But the farm industry, they're going to let the little guys take the lumps. They're going to let them innovate. And then once they see that there's a robust market and they know what the FDA and, and you know, I don't know, probably the DEA too, once they know what the regulatory landscape is going to look like, then they're going to come in, they're going to buy up the most popular products and everyone else is going to be excluded from the market. That's just the way it works. <laughs> it's just economics. Just go look into it. I'm sorry. It's unfortunate. And again, the cynical side of me says that this is job security for the public health people like there's there's like in public health there's the harm reduction folks and i have my own criticisms of that but then you have the prohibitionist wing right they take it upon themselves to dictate everything you do from yep. eating bugs to smoking to how much alcohol you drink it's just it's the way they think and if and it's and of course it's very convenient that right now it's big weed right we've run out of tobacco companies to sue we've run out of fast food companies to sue there's only so many pesticide manufacturers this is one of the next big targets right it's big weed now ooh big, it's just you know so in, right. in, in other words part of me says or suspects no i know this is true i'm sorry but this is they know that this will sustain the industry, right? So there will be a big regulated industry that can fight lawsuits and then these people will have jobs and then stat news can publish articles to the end of time about how marijuana is killing your kids. And it's just, yeah, it's a vicious cycle. Yeah. It's just a joke. I, I, that's a joke. That's just for entertainment. What I just (laughs) said, I don't believe that at all. This is only for entertainment. Okay. There you go. Stat news. Uh, check out that article. You probably can't because it's behind a $400 paywall. So there you go. Right. Right. There you <laughs> That's go. That's right. That's exactly right. Yay. Science literacy. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, final, final story for today. This is from the messenger. It's by a reporter named Rena Raphael. Um, 
I'm quoted in the story, by the way, just so for disclosure's sake, it's just not going to change what I say, obviously, but just just a heads up on that. Um, this is an article. It's called New Report Urging Parents to Buy Organic Could Hurt Americans' Health, uh, according to experts. And uh, sadly, Liza, this is about an organization I think both of us want to hold in high esteem, and that's the American Academy yes. of Pediatrics. Yeah. Um, when my when my son was born uh, a couple of years ago, I had some questions about SIDS and infant nutrition and so forth. They were the first place I went was the AAP because I generally trusted their advice. But in recent years, they've come out and become um, increasingly hostile to to agriculture. In 2012, they put out a report, you know, demanding that regulators to do more to protect people from pesticides, and it was it was a bad report. It was based on junk research. And they came out just earlier this month, and they put out a report on uh, crop biotechnology. And they said GMOs and uh, associated pesticides are a potentially serious threat to public health. They made a ton of specific claims we can get into, but um, Raphael's story just goes through. She talks to uh, Andrea Love, who's a physician. She hosts the Unbiased Science podcast. They did a great episode with Dr. Kevin Fulta, our old, our old friend, alumni here at the podcast. Um, and she just goes through and she very summarily debunks some of the things in here. So the report encourages parents to buy organic if they can. I want to talk more about that in a minute. If you can, buy organic. Um, right. There's no research that says organic is better for you or that it's safer. Just There's just no evidence for that. Um, same thing with pesticides, right? There's They cherry pick studies. They cite the IARC monograph uncritically. No mention of all of the scandal there and all the scientific problems that we can talk about. Um, but yeah, I just have to say overall, I'm I'm just so disappointed with this, Liza. Cause, cause, yeah, it's really disappointing because this is a good organization. There are lots of people who are... Um, members of the American Academy of Pediatrics that have very common sense views about vaccination. They're, they're huge proponents of vaccination and uh, children's health generally. Um, and so I'm disappointed to see this group, this particular uh, section of, uh, the, of that organization um, marketing or uh, making these uh, science-free claims. They're science-free. That's, yeah. that's the problem. And so it, it, it's difficult to, um, to, and the biggest problem with this kind of messaging is that um, it's it's bigger than a company. It's bigger than uh, you know a, a belief system. It put it really puts food security, global food security, at risk. It terrifies parents. They put pressure to ban different pesticides. And it's really unfortunate because pesticides are not only critical for public health in terms of preventing infectious diseases that have no treatment for, that are insect-borne and things like that, but they're also really, really critical for food security. And if you can look at Sri Lanka, that, that is the cost. And there is a, a huge uptick in severe childhood malnutrition um, because of uh, un, because of science-free health claims about modern agriculture. So um, I, I, I'm, I'm very, very disappointed with this. Um, and I think it's uh, unfortunate. Yeah, you know, what was most striking to me, and there's an article on uh, acsh.org that I just wrote, by the way. So so read Raphael's story and then go read mine because I, I went a little dorkier and nerdier into some of the details. <laughs> um, 
which reporters generally shouldn't do because it's just, you know, give anyways. But they made some claims in here. So as I said, most of the report is not about crop biotechnology. They say twice in there, citing the National Academies of Science, that, um, you know, transferring genes between species, there's generally very low risk associated with that. As, you know, as we know, right, we eat these products all the time. No one gets so much as a stomachache. But then they pivot to pesticides almost immediately. That was that was what was really frustrating to me. So it's like it's the same, and, and this is what stuck out to me. This is the activist tactic, is right. It's sort of a yeah. backdoor way into attacking modern agriculture. So one of the things, and again, this is the kind of parent focused stuff that really drives me nuts. So they cite IARC and they say IARC found that glyphosate is a probable carcinogen. What they don't say is that that was based on incomplete animal data. And it would the exposure only applies to people in agriculture because most of the human data they had was from agricultural studies, right? And and IARC even says in the report they said we don't have any evidence on pediatric cancers. So yeah, maybe hey. so maybe lead with that. That that's just a suggestion, right? I'm not a I'm not I don't work for AAP. I'm not a pediatrician, but just right as someone who's raising two kids, I'd like to know that you know like like if you're going to say exactly pe- right. pesticides are harmful, but there's no scientifically plausible way that a trace amount of weed killer on uh, what on corn or whatever is going to harm your child. Note nope. that in the press release, please. And that was that was not even mentioned in the report. And those trace, 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 trace amounts, parts per trillion, yeah, are are regulated. And yes. if and your exposure to those will not cause harm. Right. Right. Um, just a few other things. And again, about IARC. Sorry, I'm getting mad. I'm getting mad. I'm getting fired up. Okay. So again, the AAP report, they cite IARC. They cite a handful of studies that seem to vindicate vindicate, um, IARC's monograph. But they don't mention that there's been 17 other regulatory and public health agencies around the world that have looked at more research. They've done more robust reviews of glyphosate. They all disagree with IARC. Again, if I'm a parent, I have very limited bandwidth to research food safety. If you say, hey, there's 17 organizations, giant bureaucracies with really talented scientists on staff, all of them think that IARC is wrong. Yes. And they've also, they've also most recently had Hungary, the Netherlands, Sweden, and France independently look at all of the data, including the data that IARC looked at, write up an 11,000-page yes. report that shows that, that glyphosate is not a carcinogen and that there is not a risk to human health um, when, with these, these tiny, tiny, tiny exposures. And if, if that is not enough I, I, in terms of science, I don't know what to say because what, what, what will help people understand that this is so important for food security. Um, and this is not just glyphosate, it's, it's other herbicides. They, it, they prevent you from getting, being exposed to toxic weeds. They, they prevent um, you from uh, having more expensive food. Uh, it, food, you know, you get good quality food and vegetables and fruits, which we want people eating. Um, and they're afraid to eat it because they're afraid that it's, it's going to cause harm. The other thing that they mentioned in this article was that, oh, you know, BT, which is what the, the protein that um, is used as an insecticide, yeah. um, it's approved for organic use. Yeah. 
It, for right? 50 years, for 50 it's, years, it's been in organic agriculture. And genetically modified crops use the use the gene that makes that protein so you can decrease the amount of insecticide use that you have. Um, and, and so they make mistaken uh, statements about BT bioaccumulating and causing other problems. And it's a, or approved for organic farming. Right. We are just about out of Zoom time. Yeah, it's okay. We can, I if we need to start a new one, we can, but we can, okay. we can wrap it up really quick here if okay. you want. Um, just, yeah, a couple of the things to add. It, this bugs me to no end. You're right about the BT, right? There's been a, a bunch of research on BT crops, on the BT proteins themselves, the, the crystals, whatever. There's, there's no, there's no there there, as I've been saying lately. Um, what drives me nuts is when you get to the end of the report, there's the recommendation section and there's like nine or 10 of them, I want to say, but one, or uh, I, here's two of them. They say families who wish to minimize GMO products can do so by going to unprocessed, natural, magical, holy food that just shows up in nature. That's the good stuff, right? Eat that, not the stuff in the stores that, you know, no one has to make that. It just, the earth just produces it. Cause this it's is it. <laughs> going to grow in your backyard magically that's that's right yeah so there's there's that but then they say uh schools and hospitals dedicated to the care of children can consider avoiding serving gmo foods so here's the thing you've just spent i don't know ten thousand words or whatever maligning these products talking about toxic herbicides in the foods that people have access to and then you get to the end you go like eh, don't eat it if you don't want to and you have you can afford a 20 percent higher grocery bill it's like that is infuriating that is just that, coming from people coming from people who are very food secure. Right. Right. And I mean, I, I've been fortunate, you know, I'm not a billionaire or anything, but like when I go to the grocery store, I can afford food for my kids. And that that's such a blessing that a lot of us enjoy. But the organic stuff in the kids section, there's like pouches of veggies and it's great because kids will eat vegetables because they made it taste good, but they're all certified organic. So they're an extra two dollars and twenty cents. Yep. Yeah. It is ridiculous. Now, if you're the AAP, and they had mentioned this, right? They say, you know, there's a lot of families that that for economic reasons can't afford this stuff. So, you know, pediatricians should have conversations with their patients. It's like, what's the pediatrician going to say? Like, get more money? You know, it doesn't. It, it, yeah. Yes. You, you've just scared a whole bunch of people. <laughs> and yeah. and they don't have a, a you know a solution to this problem. That's a, yeah, it, it, unnecessarily scared, yeah. right? Okay, so there's one final problem I had with this this AAP report, Liza. Um, well, I guess I have lots, but we're not going to talk about all of them. One one of the problems is that, and again, this is going to be controversial. We'll get through this together, everyone. I promise. So, the AAP has come out very very strongly in support of gender affirming care for transgender children. Now, whatever you think of that, and I've not been shy about my opinion, there is not good long-term evidence on the effects of giving healthy uh, preteens or teenagers um, puberty blockers or cross-sex hormones, or for that matter, surgical procedures. We don't have good data on that because before 2013 or 14, this was not a prominent public health issue. We weren't having this discussion. And so outside of a few, I don't know, niche fields, Nobody was doing research on this. Nevertheless, the the AAP has come out on multiple occasions and they said, we affirm care for these children. And um, we're finally doing a systematic review of the evidence. Um, but we already know, in essence, what the conclusion is going to be, right? So what that signals to parents like me 
and parents all over the country is that this is an ideological organization. And they've done the same thing with um, climate change and with gun control and with a whole host of issues. Agriculture is now another one where they've come out and they've said, we are staking our turf, our, our position right here. It's obviously a, a partisan position that we're taking, but we're the, we're the children's health people, right? That signals to everyone that you're not making decisions based on evidence. So that's a problem. And they've been very good over the years on saying, here's how you talk to parents about vaccine hesitancy. Here's how you build trust. Individual pediatricians, here's how you talk to parents. Here's how you teach them to teach their kids about health and so forth. Um, they've been great on that. But then they come out with stuff like this and then they go, gee, gee whiz, it's just, there's a there's a trust crisis in medicine. No one trusts us anymore. What the heck's going on here? Maybe, you know, let's let's develop this really comprehensive model for rebuilding trust. And it's like, you need to to reflect just briefly on what you're doing. And maybe it's that you're saying give kids very powerful drugs at a young age when you don't know what it's going to do to them over the long term. I promise you, there are parents that see that and they go, these people are insane. I'm not going to trust anything they say. Anyways, your thoughts, Liza. <laughs> yeah, I think, yeah, I think it's a, it's a real problem when things get politicized. And I, still, I'd like to point out that there are a lot of members of this organization that are good scientists that really, really want to bring, you know, public health and have the best health outcomes for kids. But yeah, if you're, if, if they're making claims that are, you know, really contradictory, um, that makes it difficult for people to suss out what's the truth, right? So if, you know, if you're saying homeopathic doses are of, of substance one is a, you know, endocrine disruptor and we can't have homeopathic doses of this on one side and then flip it and, and say something else on the other side about real endocrine issues, it, it's, right. it's, it's, it's problematic from a, scientific, from a strictly scientific point of view. It's, right. it's, that's, that's a very difficult uh, uh uh, bridge to sort of straddle, I guess. I, I don't know yeah. if that's even a term, but it, no. it's very. Yeah, I get it. I get it. It's, yeah. it's, it makes perfect sense. Like, and here's the, the basic thing, right? You can't on one hand say, you know, exposure to these chemicals are bad because it's politically acceptable to say that, but exposure to these actually potentially very harmful chemicals are totally fine because that's politically acceptable, you know? Just I, yeah. you have to think through that. They, like you, ha you have to at least be <laughs> consistent. Consistent, right? So the yeah. truth is the truth, right? And that, and that's what I think is so important about this podcast and other, other, uh, other discussions. Stay with the truth, and you won't go wrong. A lot of people might not like you. Uh, you might get canceled. You might get shut down. But as long as you are adhere to the truth, um, and sometimes the, this is the thing that's frustrating about the whole COVID thing was that we were learning about it in real time. And so, mis so people made mistakes and some of those mistakes really impacted people. And, and so as the truth evolves, you should stay, you should, you should, and, and if it turns out that the evidence should change your opinion, you should have an open enough mind to try to do that. And that's why it's so important to have open scientific debates right? And open scientific discussion um, so that people can see science is something that, that we learn, right? And, you know, and we grow from. And so as long as you are sticking as close to the truth as you possibly can, mm -hmm. um, you will, I think you will be on the right track. Yeah. 
Yeah. And let me say something nice in closing, because I've been pretty brutal towards the AAP. But uh, uh, last year, I think it was, they came out with a report um, about childhood obesity. And it was it was it was quite good. You know, I mean, like they they got criticism in the media and they got, you know, there was some, you know, Academy of Children's Mental Health or something like that. They they attacked them for, you know, for fat shaming people. But mm-hmm. AAP came out and it, some of the language was kind of silly because they're like, you know, make sure the furniture in your office is big enough and make sure the art is, you know, acceptable and it makes people feel welcoming. Or It's like that's a little dumb. But they nonetheless, they came out and they said, look, childhood obesity is a very big problem and we need to address it. So, so yeah. good on them for having the willing. So uh, again, here's another example, right? They are able to follow the science on certain issues. Yes. Do it on all issues. That's it. Yes. That's Just it. do it on all issues. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, we'll leave it there. Uh, go read the report and uh, read, you know, read the criticism of it because it's coming from very reputable people. Um, not just me ranting on my podcast, but uh, like, like <laughs> PhDs, agricultural scientists, toxicologists, you know, so uh, it's good good to read all sides and then settle settle with the facts. But uh, we're done for now. See you next week. Follow us on Twitter, X, whatever you want to call it. It's at Dr. Liza MD, at Cam J English. Genetic Literacy Project is at geneticliteracy.org. We don't speak for them, of course, but they give us this platform. They let us say whatever we want, which we really appreciate. So with that, have a great week. See you next time. Bye-bye.